And it's okay listening to your customers. It's okay listening to coworkers. It's okay being a team effort. Who cares what idea wins? It's about making sure that you win. So launching really quickly, getting instant feedback, adapting, launching again, getting feedback. That cycle is a lot better. It gives you a lot more odds of success than building, 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 and then launching. for you, the unconventional leader. Maybe you are the one that everyone discounted. Maybe you struggle with fear and self-doubt. We are here to empower the next generation of self-starters to step up, use their voice, and make an impact in this world. Welcome to today's episode. If this is your first time listening, my name is Heather Parody. I am your host. Today's episode is so good. Just got off a call with Jeremy Parker, who is the co-founder, CEO of Swag.com a top e-commerce platform, which last year alone during the pandemic hit $10 million. This is just in a few short years of growing, learning, adjusting. Jeremy shares some incredible tips and tricks for entrepreneurs at any level, including things he wishes he would have started sooner, some mistakes he made, and what he learned from it. Make sure you connect with Jeremy over at swag.com. That is linked in the show notes. One cool little aspect about his story is he actually started off in filmmaking and switched over to entrepreneurship. So we're going to hear about that as well. But before we get started, if there is someone in your life who you know would love this podcast, please take a screenshot of this, specifically this episode. If you have someone in your life who is a maybe a young person who's starting off in their business, taking the leap into entrepreneurship, and they need some real concrete advice. This is the episode to share with them. Take a screenshot. Thank you for helping us get this out into the world. Let's go ahead and get into this. Co-founder, CEO of Swag.com, Jeremy Parker. So actually, my original passion was always in marketing. I always wanted to be a branding guy in high school. So when I was in high school, I was one of those weird kids who was interested in commercials, honestly, like, like how things were displayed and packaging design. I was just really fascinated with that. But I went to Boston University and I was looking at the course curriculum between you know, marketing and film. They really were the exact same thing, except for film would teach me how to tell stories through video. And this is at the early onset of YouTube. And I just felt like being able to tell a story through video will be very powerful one day. Obviously, it's been very clear that that was a good decision. But I learned how to become a filmmaker. And during the film program, I came up with this movie idea with my brother called 1%. It's about the wealthiest 1% of Americans. I don't want to ruin the idea, but the film ultimately won the Vail Film Festival. So I was in this film festival in Vail, Colorado, and I'm uh, I'm on like the top of the mountain. I remember it was snowing outside. It was beautiful. And half the room were these big celebrities everybody knows. And half half the room was like these struggling artists. And I was like thinking like, this is such a weird kind of place to be where there's such a disconnect between the people who really, really make it and the people who don't make it. And I kind of had to do an internal gut check of, number one, am I good enough? And do I really love filmmaking? And it never truly was my passion. It was kind of, it was a passion. It was an interest. And it was also because I wanted to be a marketer that I thought, you know what? I'm not that good. I mean, I won this award, which is kind of weird to say, but I didn't feel like I was, I didn't feel like it was going to be my life's passion. It was kind of like a hard internal gut check to be. Um, When I went back to BU, I had to finish up the last year. And when I finished college, I realized, well, I have no business experience whatsoever but maybe I could learn what I'm good at, what I'm bad at, what, what, what interests me, frankly. 
So I started my first company and I thought, wouldn't it be so you know, interesting to start a t-shirt company? It sounds simple, but if you really kind of break down the components, you have to learn how to manufacture and you have to learn how to market and do PR and how to build a website. And this is before Shopify days. So you have to really learn how to build things from scratch. And I realized you know, what I was really passionate and what I really loved. And I love telling stories and I love telling stories and selling products and telling stories and helping our customers out. So it led me on this long journey to where I am today, but I've done four different businesses. Some have failed, some have succeeded, mm -hmm. um, some have sold to publicly traded companies. Mm -hmm. um, and now I'm at this place of doing swag and we've been doing this for five years. And it's taking all the different passions of my past 12 years to be building what we're building today. Was it 12 years ago that you left college? Is that what kind yeah, of- exactly. Yeah, I graduated college in 2000. Seven, so about what, thirteen years ago at this point. Okay. Um, and yeah, my first job out of college, I was I was running a a high end t shirt company. That was the initial idea that I had, and I launched it at literally the worst time you could possibly launch a company. It was three months before the recession hit. Hmm. So I don't know if you remember in two thousand seven, mm -hmm. the recession, the Bear Stearns, all the banks went under, um, and all these stores that we were selling to went under. So I had this kind of gimmicky, a little bit, but creative strategy where I tied the price of our t shirts to the price of the Dow Jones. So that every hundred points the Dow drops, people would get a discount on their t-shirt price. And I wrote this note to Mark Cuban, just put yourself back in like a 22 year old. I was trying to learn as much as I could about business. So I was reading all the different blogs. And one of the blogs that was my go-to was Blog Maverick by Mark Cuban. And I wrote him this long note and I said, hey, this is my marketing strategy. This is what I'm doing to try to stay alive. And he responded within 10 minutes. And he wrote, he said, can I write about you on my blog? No so way. So he posted the letter I sent to him on his blog. And that led me down this whole different rabbit hole where this magazine called Ad Age read about it, ended up writing about me in their magazine, which got seen by this guy who was the CEO of MV Sport, one of the largest players in the promotional product space, who reached out to me. We became friends. We connected. We worked together. I ultimately ran a business under this guy's division and really introduced me to the promotional product division and the promotional product industry, which is not the sexiest of industries. No one thinks to disrupt this industry as a 22-year-old. So I had like unique insight into this space. And what I've realized that over the last 10, 12 years, industry has gotten bigger, but the, but the buyer changed. And that's when it, kind of the light bulbs went off is that the buyer is no longer a 40 to 50-year-old office manager. Mm. It's a 23-year-old. And 23-year-olds want to do things very, very differently. So why can I build the platform for today's buyer? And then in 2016, we launched swag.com. So it kind of all connected in some, in some weird way. All right. So I got, some, I got some questions based off all that. First of all, let's go back to when you said, you said that there were two things that you considered when you're at this uh, event with these people who have, quote, made it, and these people who are really struggling. And you said, am I really good at this? Is this something that I enjoy? And I think those are two very powerful questions. But what's difficult about it is you just alluded to when you you know, started some other businesses, they failed. And so sometimes deciding between, am I really good at this? Is this something that I can succeed at? And you know, counting these failures is just normal struggle pains of climbing whatever I'm, this hill that I've decided to climb. How did you know deep in your soul, this is something I'm good at and these failures aren't a sign that I should switch lanes? Actually interesting because just think about my perspective. I was actually the winner of this film festival. So it wasn't even a failure. I, I won the festival. We won the audience award at the Vail Film Festival. So I'm in this room and people are congratulating me and I'm signing autographs. I'm literally the winner of this festival. And I still had the internal gut check of, am I good enough? Because I, what I realized is when I was looking at all the other films and I was walking around for those five days and I'm seeing the work, even though we won, I'm seeing the work of other people. And I was wildly impressed. And I had to, I really just did an internal gut check. Like, 
I'm clearly good at this, but am I really good at this to make it a career? And then it kind of was like, I don't know, it's borderline. It's like borderline to me. And then it became like, well, do I really love it? And if I didn't love it, then why should I pursue something that I don't necessarily love to do? Right. And that's what really was the kind of the impetus of the change. But then you go into the business and you said you yeah. failed at some businesses, which yeah. might be a sign that says, hey, I'm not good enough at this, but you yeah. knew deep down that it was something you still needed to pursue. What was the yes. internal thing there? The internal thing for me with business is I really loved it. Okay. I love I love the challenge of it. And I and I realized when I failed at something that, you know, I failed and I could pinpoint why I failed. And I could say, you know what, the next time I'm not going to fail in that way. I might fail in a completely different way, right? With business, there's no kind of foolproof. I mean, there's so many smart people in the world who are starting businesses that just don't work out. Mm-hmm. And it's not like you're guaranteed to succeed if you work hard enough. It's not, it's not like there's no guarantee That's in anything. Truth. But, but, but I think what you could do is you could learn from what you're doing and you can make the, the, the next experience better. And that doesn't mean you're going you're gonna to win at it or it's going to succeed, but you have a better shot at it. And every business that you fail, failure is just a means to, to becoming successful, in my opinion. It might not happen right away. It might take you 30 years, 50 years, 100. Like you might be doing this for your whole life before you find success, but you're going to have a better chance of being successful because you're going to learn from your failures. Powerful. There's this other interesting point you made about this interaction with Cuban and how he randomly is like, well, let me throw this up on my, you know, in front of all my people. Uh, and that was, you know, I'm sure there was a lesson in that. It might seem as though that might be like a very lucky thing, but I'm. Sh- it seems as though that's kind of a, re- correct me if I'm wrong, a reoccurring kind of strategy of yours, because one of the first clients you guys got was Facebook. So it's kind of like a go big or go home type thing that I'm seeing yeah. just as a bystander. Am I wrong in that? And what's kind of your philosophy around, you know, you know, putting yourself in front of Cuban? I think just putting yourself in front of any, anybody is important. It doesn't matter if it's mm. Cuban or it's Facebook or it's anyone, because what's the worst that could happen? They don't respond. They say no, yeah. like who cares? Yeah. There's, no, there's, there's really, every, people are, are really afraid of failure so much so that they don't put themselves out there. Mm. But when you put yourself out there, you realize it doesn't really matter. Yeah. It's not not the biggest deal to be rejected. You know, in, in the early days when I was doing swag and we got Facebook as our first client and we, we showed up at the office and we're walking around and it, frankly, it didn't matter to me whether I sold Facebook $100 worth of stuff, $10,000 worth of stuff, whether I made 30% margin, 100% margin, 2% margin, it didn't matter. I wanted Facebook as a customer because for two reasons, I wanted their logo on my homepage so I can show the social proof. And I wanted to learn how Facebook buys swag because it probably, how they buy it is similar to other big tech companies. That was it. Just to have the social proof and to learn. And, and if you go into anything with that kind of perspective of, I'm not doing it to succeed, I'm doing it to learn, mm. I think you're gonna have bit much better results. Like if you go somewhere and you fail at something, maybe your approach is wrong. So you can learn and then you can fix your approach. So that's it. I think to me, it's just about learning, especially in the early days of a business. Don't think about making money really. Think about learning so that you can build the right product that ultimately can make money. Right. And just to put it straight, like, our first year of business, we did about 350,000 in sales. It was very manual. It was me and my co-founder, Josh, literally knocking on doors, being traveling salesmen and just trying to make sales, but really learn. The second year of business, we learned a lot. We adapted, we changed our pitch, we changed our marketing, we changed everything. We built the first version of our e-commerce site and we did 1.1 million. Now, when we did 1.1 million, we learned from who our customers are and how they buy swag and we adjusted. The third year, we did 3.1 million. We kept learning. We had different customers, different customers that you know wanted to buy less. And some buyers wanted to be more. There's different kinds of things that we had to do. Next year, we did 6.9 million. Then we learned a little bit more and we kind of refined it. Last year, we did 15.4 million. Wow. This year, hopefully we'll do 30 million. Like It's just about keep learning from who, you, like what mistakes you make. And everybody makes mistakes, 
but you have to be okay making mistakes and be okay that you're going to learn from the mistakes. And ultimately you won't make mistakes. Mm. And that's really, it. and that's what we try to instill in our team. Like when we build a feature and we launch it, it's probably not going to work out from day one. Yeah. It usually never does, but you could find like a grain of what will work. And then you keep refining and making it better. And ultimately, as long as you have the passion and you're willing to do the hard work and you're willing to mm-hmm. listen to your customers, you're willing to test things and you're not afraid of failure, you're going to ultimately figure it out. With the size company you have now, what does listening to your customers practically look like? For swag right now? Mm-hmm. I mean, I talk to my customers all the time. Mm-hmm. I have in the beginning, in the early days, it was just me. I was, sure. you know, CEO, head intern, head of customer success, and you do everything. Now we have a team um, that can handle it. But I talk to my team and I say, think of like, and now we're all virtual. So there's no really like open door policy technically, but I say, reach out to me. Any idea that a customer says to you that whether we don't have or something that we should have, or if you get enough requests for the same thing, always bring it to my attention because my cu- my customer right. success team is on the front lines. We need to listen to our customers. When we build a feature, it's not because it's guessing, right? We're not guessing mm. anymore. In the early days, it was a feeling, right? Before you have anything, you have to have, you have to go off of feeling. We had a feeling that there was no swag brand that appealed to today's buyer. That was our feeling. Mm. That's what we saw in the market, right? We said, well, who is our buyer? We spoke to a lot of office managers and we realized a lot of things that they want. They want a curated experience. They don't want to have to search through thousands of products to find what they're looking for. They want to easily find it. They don't want to have to talk to people on the phones. Technically, they want to do it themselves. They want to be self-serve. Yeah. They want a brand that appeals to them. You know, you think about Facebook. Facebook is spending three thousand, ten thousand, hundred thousand dollars on swag to elevate their own brand, but yet there's no promotional product company that cares about their own brand. Like, wouldn't you think if you're a branding guy or a designer at Facebook or Amazon or Google, all these customers that we work with, that you would think that the customer, the company that you're buying from, would also care about their brand because it would make sure that you feel confident mm-hmm. using them. There was no brand in our space. There's no one you could think of. This is the place to go get promotional products. So when we realized all this, we had an early idea, but all the different nuances of how the site should work and how the upload feature should work and how we're going to calculate costs in real time and all, everything, we didn't know any of it. Literally, we didn't know any of it. We had to learn from our customers and build that platform. And usually a customer could say something and they don't necessarily know exactly what they want, but they have a better handle than we do. So it's, it's a better... It's a better bet to build what customers ask for versus just thinking that you know the future. Right. God, that's so good. If you could like look back and say, I wish I would have started doing this sooner that you would really attribute to success and it was something that's been working over the past couple of years, you wish you would have done in the early days, what would that be? Um, with swag, I think I've, I've learned a lot over my previous failures or previous successes to hopefully do things in the right way. I would say in general, as an entrepreneur, I wish I launched quicker. Really? With swag, we launched right away with a landing page and I got sales right away. So I don't, Swag, we've done it, I think the right way. Previous businesses that I've had, we built a platform, it took us a year and a half to build the platform because we wanted to build what we thought was the right platform. Mm. And we were deep focused on all the small details and this or that. And what we realized when we launched it is that all the things that we valued and we cared about, the customers couldn't care about. They cared about totally different things. And I think it's such an important thing for entrepreneurs to get out of their own way remove the ego completely. Yeah. Don't think that you know all the answers because you don't. You don't. And it's okay not to. And no one expects you to. And it's okay listening to your customers. It's okay listening to coworkers. It's okay being a team effort. Who cares what idea wins? It's about making sure that you win. Amen. So launching really quickly, getting instant feedback, adapting, launching again, getting feedback, that cycle is a lot better. It gives you a lot more odds of success than, than building, 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 and then launching. Because when you build, 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 you're burning so much money. You have no idea what your customers want. You're not taking their feedback into consideration. And you're most likely 
Maybe you're wrong. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you build, you know exactly what your customers want. You're most likely, I would say nine, nine out of 10 times or even more building the wrong thing. Ooh. Um, okay. Well, going back, you, you talked about how, you know, the, the consumer had changed, you know, we had this image in our head that is these 50 year old CEOs buying for their company. And, you know, you guys have adapted to a, a younger audience. What kind of gave you that insight and I guess courage to, to shift, because I know, you know, and this is a very micro question, but, you know, I, it's interesting when I started on this path, I was, I was, um, advised a lot to really shoot for people who are a little bit older because they have more money. And this seems like a little bit more of a stable demographic, but the courage to say, like, you know what, I want to target younger people who may be spending a little bit less, but um, that's where the market's going. And I'm trusting that I'm going to build brand around that. Can you tell us a little bit about that journey and just the decision process to just make the decisions that you guys have. Yeah. So early on when I was 22 and I was doing this uh, promotional product division under MV Sport. So I was going to the trade shows with the CEO of MV Sports, a really large company, 900 plus employees. Um, And all the buyers at these trade shows were older. This is, you know, 2007, 2008 at that time. And they were 40, 50 year old. And I saw how they did sales. I saw like the the salesperson would show up with the catalog and they would go through the pamphlet and they would point at pictures and they would, Mm -hmm. it seemed like the buyer then enjoyed the experience of talking to people. And just knowing myself as a millennial, I literally looked and I said, well, the industry is very, very getting bigger, bigger, bigger. But now the office manager, and I knew this from companies and friends who worked at companies and friends who started companies, all of the office managers were no longer the 40, 50 year old. They were this 23 to 25 year old. So I just knew for myself, like, I don't want to sit down for an hour and speak to a sales rep. That, that sounds literally like my biggest nightmare. So I would rather, and I would thought if it, if it was for myself, if I, if I put myself in the buyer's shoes, and this is what I did not want to do. There has to be a better way of what I would want to do. So that was like kind of the early idea. The second thing that we was kind of like a, a unique insight to us is that there's so many different divisions within the company that buy swag. There's the office manager that buys swag for mm-hmm. internal offices. Mm-hmm. There's the HR manager that buys swag for onboarding new hires. There's the marketing team that buys swag for trade shows and events. And then there's the sales team that buys swag to send to leads to close sales. There's all of these different divisions within the company that buy swag. And some divisions are bigger than others. Like the marketing team spends probably the most of any company division because they're spending a lot on Google ads and they're spending on booths and all these different things. The sales team spends a lot also because they're directly um, connected to actually bringing in money. What division spends probably the least? So I thought maybe probably the office manager probably spends the least because they're buying for just internal. It's only internal, but culture is very important. So I said, well, what is their budget? So in the beginning days, I want to learn about the office manager at most because mm-hmm. I want to see like, who are they really? How much do they spend? Is it big enough for us to go after as of a market? And I realized that the office manager is the youngest in the company typically. They're spending more than you would think. They're not spending as much as the marketing or sales team, but they're spending more than you would think. And it's a great way of getting into the company. So think of like mm-hmm. a Trojan horse strategy, as opposed to going to the marketing team, which every other promotional, there's 30,000 of us. There's literally 30,000 promotional product companies. All these companies are going after the big players. They're going after the sales teams. They're going after the marketing, going after trade shows and events. No one's going after the office manager, but really the office manager is like the gateway into the company. Because if you're the office manager and you're buying hundred t-shirts for all of your internal employees, that means a hundred employees, every division will now know who's the swag that we got. Like. If when I make a t-shirt, it says swag.com on inner label. So if you're an office manager and you buy a hundred t-shirts and you put your logo here and on the inner label, it says swag.com and you give that t-shirt to a hundred of your coworkers. Now, every single one of your coworkers knows swag.com and they know that the company uses swag.com. So maybe they should use swag.com for their own swag needs. Okay. It was like a great kind of way to get in and expand and market 
Um, and it's been working. And now obviously we do, we work with marketing teams and sales teams and HR teams and we've expanded, but in the early days, you can't be, you can't be everything to everyone. Yeah. You should pick a specific kind of target. It doesn't need to be your ultimate target. It doesn't even need to be what you think your ultimate target will be. That wasn't our case. We knew what our ultimate right. target was and get the whole company, but it's also very hard to break into businesses. So you have to figure out your best way to get in. Jeremy, where do you learn all this? Did just, was your family entrepreneurial? Like where is all books that you read? No, um, no. I mean, I definitely try to read. So you definitely learn some, some things. I think some things are just, you think about it, you know, you're as, as a mark, I've always been like wanting to be a marketer. So I always analyze what other companies were doing in terms of how they're telling the story to me and how mm -hmm. I'm, you know, reacting to it. So that was, I was super interested in kind of in that part about like how to really not manipulate, but how to, how can companies profit and make money? And why is one product, if those products are really the same, why does one product succeed over the other? And I was always so fascinated by that. Um, so I just, I think a lot of it's just natural. A lot of it's just listening. A lot of it's just watching and certain things just come in. Yeah. Uh, my dad is an entrepreneur. So I've seen a lot about the struggles and the triumphs that he's overcome and he's seen. Uh, my brother's an entrepreneur. So um, we're, we're a family of entrepreneurs. So we're able to talk about things and be okay with the failure. I think yeah. that's a very important thing. I think that's probably it always goes back to me because there's a lot of my friends who are afraid to start something or yeah. I have this idea and they just never get off the ground because like, well, am I going to be doing it? Am I really going to be able to accomplish it? Should I do it? What happens if I lose money? Yeah. Like all those things are just blocking you from finding a career that you really enjoy. Yep. So yep. me, just get yourself out there and be okay with learning. Speaking That's of really. failure, our listeners, one of their favorite things is learning about a failure that somebody I'm interviewing has had. Is there one that sticks out in your mind that you had a great lesson from? Yeah, I say I did. I did a, a social networking app called Vouch, um, and Vouch was democratizing your favorite things. So think of how all right, this is where idea, our idea came from. The idea was, what if we could build a social networking around the like button? Every other major social network in the world takes a bit of Facebook and they and they focus on it. So you think of it like the status update. Twitter took that and said, okay, we're only going to make a platform about the status update. And Instagram took the picture and said, we're only going to make a social network about the pictures. And then you have the poke button. Snapchat said, let's just do one just about the poke, the fun thing, like make it more fun. And all these different platforms are literally saying, this is, I'm just taking the dedicated experience. Um, and for us, what is the most monetizable aspect of Facebook? It's the, it's really the like button. It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's where Facebook makes all their money, like knowing what you like and being able to serve you ads. So we thought, wouldn't it be cool if we could make a fun experience? Because liking something is not necessarily fun. But what if we could make it fun? What if we could like democratize Oprah's favorite things for everybody? Everyone could say, these are my favorite songs. These are my favorite movies. This is my favorite dish at a restaurant and make it fun. And we launched this app. I did with my brother and uh, Jesse Itzler, yeah. who's world, you know, renowned um, yeah. entrepreneur, started Marquee Jet, private jet company and Zico Coconut Water. Mm -hmm. And he's the owner of Atlanta Hawks. And we built the social networking app, which was, I thought, really amazing. We had hundreds of thousands of users and we had major celebrities using it but it never took off to where it needed to be. And social networking, it's not like something like just make money. You need to build a network of users every single day using the platform. And when I learned from this experience, it was a three years, it was a three-year journey, is you should really build what your customers want. So that's right after that, I started Swag. So that's the first thing, build what your customers want and launch really quickly. Learn from your customers, adapt and fix it. Because who knows, what if, we, what if we built like an MVP, a minimum viable product in a month versus a year and a half, mm -hmm. and we launched it right away. And what if we could have learned that maybe they didn't want this exact thing. Maybe they wanted the experience to be like, I'm just throwing this out there, like Tinder, you know, like yeah. where you swipe left and right for ideas. And then the algorithm gives you better suggestions. Like who knows what the right version of the idea. I still think the idea is amazing. I think somebody's going to figure it out. 
I just don't think we figured it out because we didn't have the insight from our customers of the right product to build. And I think you never know. There's really no, I mean, you could be having celebrity partners and it not work out. Mm -hmm. Like you need to make sure you're building the right product for the, for, for the people and, and what they actually care about. Y'all weren't ready for this today. This is some fire. Very good. Very good. Uh, two last questions for you, Jeremy. Uh, one is unsung hero. Ask every single person who their unsung hero is. A lot of times when we think about making a difference in this world, we think about this celebrity, the CEO of this company, all of these people who we know of. But a lot of times when I talk to people, the, the one who made the biggest difference in their life was someone you've never heard of. You know, somebody you never will maybe hear of. If they could look back over your life and say, there's one unsung hero, who was that? I would see for me, it's somebody I do know of. Um, it's not a celebrity. I don't necessarily look at celebrities as a as anything more than a celebrity. Sure. Um, I think of my unsung heroes, my family. I have a great parents. I think for, my, for myself, you know, learning from my dad on the business side and hearing how he thinks about things. I think it was, I, th I can even remember like an early day when I was like eight or nine years old. It's actually kind of a funny story and it, it stuck with me. We were at a, uh, a hotel and my, my dad wanted to upgrade at the hotel. And he's talking to the, the bellman at the desk and he's trying to get an upgrade. He's trying to schmooze. My dad's a schmoozy kind of guy. He's talking, he's schmoozing. And the guy says, sorry, sir. I'm sorry, sir. It's not possible. I'm sorry. There's nothing here. And my dad looks at me and he says, did you hear that man say no? And I said, yeah. And he says, he really, mean, he really meant yes. He just doesn't know yet. And my dad got the room and got the upgrade. And I, I don't know, I don't remember the, all the fine details of what he said or how he got it. But that, that line, he really said, you see, he said, no, he really meant yes. He just doesn't know it really has permeated my entire life. Like launching a business, getting no's, like being okay with failure, being okay to overcome being. And it happened, like literally happened many times. Like there's customers that we reach out to that do say no to us always in my head. I'm like, they will eventually say yes. And in a year from now, they're going to say yes. Or, and it's happened many times. There's been customers early days who said no. And then like 10 different people at the company are starting to buy swag from us a year later. You know, Amazon in the early days said no to us like three different times. We, we sell to Amazon like 15 different buyers within Amazon organization buy swag through us. And it's one of these things that is just a powerful thing that it's never, really, it's never where you are. It's always where you can, where you can go and where you can, what you can become. Is that something that you're born with or is that something you can learn? That grit? Yeah. Um, I don't know. Cause I, I think I have it, but yeah, I, I think, I, I think you could learn, I think you could learn it. I think you have to probably fail at things. I mean, I don't think, I don't think you're going to get the grit by always being successful. Yeah. Um, I think it's okay to fail. And I think you have to internalize and be like, you know what? It's okay that I fail, but next time I won't. Yeah. And it's okay to fail again. Next time I won't. Yeah. And, and, and build up that grit. I yeah. think grit is definitely, you're able, you're, I think you're definitely able to, to build it up and be, maybe it. not to extreme, extreme, but you, there's definitely better than what, than what people have right now. Love it. Before our very last question, Jeremy, thank you so much for coming on. This was so incredibly valuable uh, tweets. So many tweets are there in, in this conversation. Where can people connect with you online and what are you the most excited about? Yeah, great. So you could obviously check us out at swag.com, S-W-A-G.com. You could send me an email, jeremy at swag.com. Um, hopefully I'll respond. And um, for, what we're really excited about right now is our swag distribution platform. So mm -hmm. when this pandemic hit, um, we had to adapt. You know, the whole industry of promotional products was down over 40% all the events were closed, all the offices were closed. Our sales dropped from you know, 200,000 the first week of March to 19,000 the second week of March, this is last year. It was a very scary time. And what we've been able to do is remarkable. And I'm so proud of our team of what we've been able to accomplish. 
but we went from like the lowest of the lows to launching our swag distribution platform that allows companies to buy swag in bulk, hold it in our fulfillment center. Like think of it as like an online swag closet and distribute it to either one address or a thousand addresses at once, or create our swag giveaway where you could capture your recipient's address, whether it's a customer, whether it's your remote team, whether it's a lead, you could capture their address and then send them something in the mail to engage with them. It allowed us to go from 6.9 million in 2019 when everyone expected us to be down 40% last year. We actually grew over 100% end of the year with 15.4 million last year. So our feeling is swag distribution is the future of our industry. We have an amazing platform. We built the platform even a year before the pandemic hit, not knowing about the pandemic. It was more for the work from home culture. So it wasn't built reactionary. It was built in advance because we had an insight. We obviously didn't realize the pandemic was going to happen. We hope the pandemic ends. But for anybody who wants to distribute swag to wherever you are in the world, we have the ultimate platform for you. So please check us out. Leaders, leaders, we have that in the show notes. Make sure you definitely check that out. Jeremy, very last question. Let's say we were to go back in time. You mentioned this young man who uh, was at this festival and he actually won and he was, you know, he got what he had worked for. And he was at this crossroads where he was really asking himself these hard questions of, is this really what I love? Is this really what I'm called to do? Uh, it's pre all your businesses, pre swag, pre everything that you've learned over the past several years. If you were to go and sit with that young man and tell him one thing that you've learned now that he did not know back then, what would that be? Oh, good question. Buy Bitcoin. No, um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you know, I never want to change my life. I think I'm, I'm proud of my life. I'm proud of what I've done and where I'm going. So, and also I think, I don't know if I would be the same person as I am without the failures. So to me, I would say, keep going. I mean, to me, I think the most important thing with, with anybody as an entrepreneur is just take the first step. That's really it. Take the first step, commit. And it's, I promise you, it's not as scary once you take the first step. It's always scary to take that first step. But once you take the first one, then you don't think about the failure. You, you don't think about anything. You think about, well, how am I going to figure yeah. this all out? How am I going to learn? How am I going to navigate the waters? How am I going to succeed? Your mindset changes. So just take the first step and you'll you'll enjoy the ride for sure. Hey guys, what did you think about that? I think the main takeaway was this question of asking yourself, not only am I good at this, but do I actually love it? Because through the ups and the downs and all the turns and the twists, you've got to love what you're doing or you're not going to stay at the game. And I'm not saying you always got to like it, right? We don't always like everything that we do, but if you know that it's something you truly, truly love, it's worth pursuing. Again, make sure that you connect with Jeremy over at swag.com. That is also linked in the show notes. And we would love to hear from you. Send us a text message. It's 501-214-4307. Again, that is 501-214-4307. We love you in your corner. See you soon. Mm -hmm.